Hello and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I am Amanda Carpenter sitting in for Charlie Sykes, who is taking a very well-deserved vacation. And while he's out, I have an awesome guest. She is a senior lecturer at Yale's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. You have seen her on CNN as one of our best legal and national security analysts. She is an editor at Just Security, and she's also been a special agent at the New York office for the FBI. You know who she is, is Asha Rangapa. Asha, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Amanda. I'm excited to be here. So do you have a good Labor Day weekend? Are you well-rested, ready to go into the the, the second year of COVID? <laughs> um, I, I am. I'm right now just thankful that my kids are back in school for now. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it just stays that way because you probably, I don't know what your situation was last fall, but mine were remote for pretty much most of the year. Yeah, that's brutal. I mean, I can't, it really just set into me this weekend that we're going into the second year of COVID. I don't know why, like it kind of passed me by the summer because it felt like it was going away. Mm-hmm. But sending the kids with the mask to school for the second year in a row has really hit me. And and maybe I had more time to think about it this weekend because my kids, they've been in school, like this might be their third week now. Um, and they came home with a sniffle on Wednesday. And so I thought, oh, okay, no problem. We'll get them a test. We'll see what's going on. We'll be we'll do the responsible thing. Um, none of them had fevers. We had had a good stockpile of tests because my husband's been traveling and we just thought it's good to, you know, test every time he kind of comes home from a trip. We had one test left in the, in the cupboard. So we tested the kid who seemed a little more sniffly than the other. It was negative. And then I thought, okay, well, we'll just keep them home because it's gross to be sniffly in a mask and I don't want them like yuck. Um, I'll, I'll go out and we'll keep them home Thursday. I'll get another test for my other kid. I spent all day Thursday running around this area into every Walgreens, CVS, Target, you name it. They were gone. There were no over-the-counter tests anywhere. I mean, I was really baffled. It's like we're going into the second year of this and I can't find an over-the-counter test. And so I kind of, I was mad about it. And so then Friday morning, you know, (laughs) the local pharmacy said, oh, we're getting a shipment on Friday. You know, check first thing in the morning, we'll have them. Of course they didn't. And they said, we're not getting any. We we don't get another truck till next week. So at that point, I'm like, okay, there's frustrating that I've kept my kids now for home for two days just out of caution. And they were still sniffly. They were still kind of ucky. Um, I said, let's look at the standing testing sites. Okay, great. There's a place in town, a government-run testing site. They're open from 10 to 5. We get there at 3.30. They said, oh, the lady that does testing went home because nobody came today. Oh, my God. Sorry. I said, you got to be kidding me. Are we, we're in a pandemic. I can't get it over to the counter test. And at the government run testing site, the lady went home early because it's Labor Day Friday. Great. So then I get online. The first pharmacy test I can get in the area is for Sunday morning. Okay, lock that in, whatever. Um, go back to the government run testing site on Saturday, get it done. So now my daughter has two tests, which is more than we need. But at this point, I need a test result Monday. Right. So I can send the kid to school on Tuesday. We go all day Monday. No result. No result. No result. So I, you know, email the school. This is what we're doing. Finally, the Walgreens test came in overnight. She's negative. Still haven't got the government testing result. And I am just scratching my head because testing was always supposed to be part of the protocol. We had testing. It was available. It is part of the regime to keeping things open in addition to masking, in addition to vaccines. And it just seems like we completely gave up on it. Have you seen anything like this? No, Amanda, you're totally right. And I think the idea of that we've given up is what it feels like to me. I don't know if you remember the Seinfeld episode where um, George basically says, you know, when you give up, you put on sweatpants. Um, and I feel, I I feel like collectively as a nation, like we've just basically like, we're all wearing sweatpants right now. 
Um, I'm in Lycra as we speak. It's not sweatpants, but it's pretty much the ash, athla leisure equivalent. Right, exactly. <laughs> like elastic waistband. Um, we don't care what we look like because, yeah, it it feels like a year and a half into this, w- this should be a very streamlined operation, a well-oiled machine, figuring out – like other countries have done this. Yes. Like it's not – it doesn't feel like this should be – you know, reinventing the wheel. Um, And the other thing, Amanda, and I think this might be part of it is like going back into this, you mentioned the second year, you know, last year it felt like we have, you know, we're all in this together. Like we have to Mm -hmm. do this, you know, we have to wait for the vaccine. This year, I think there's also like a lot of anger underlying it because we are doing this again. It is Groundhog Day because most people are not like you, Amanda. They aren't being cautious. They aren't um, testing. They aren't wearing masks. And that is increasing the burden on you and me. Do you see what I'm saying? Like the ones. Oh, 100%. Like it's like- I'm compassion fatigued out. And I. I can't even imagine what it is like for the doctors and nurses who are dealing with this for the second year post-vaccine. No, it's like grasshopper and the ant, you know, and we're the ants. And I've been working for like a year and a half. And the grasshopper's just like walking around spreading COVID. Yeah. Well, the good news is, is that Joe Biden is going to give a speech this week about back to school. My kids have been back to school for three weeks. And I'm not really knocking Joe Biden, but... The idea that he's going to give a speech this week and talk about getting back to school and getting through the pandemic when I think a lot of parents have been already fighting through this since August yeah. is a little off the mark. Yeah. I was about to say, like, you know, my sister lives in Texas and her kids started school in like the second or third week of August. Yeah. And I'm, I'm afraid we're going to see. Listen, I, I am here as a pundit and an analyst, you know, for the finger pointing and how red states and blue states handled this differently. But if Joe Biden gets up there and acts like Ron DeSantis is the reason all this is happening, I I just don't think that is going to pass muster, especially when we're failing on things like the testing, um, things that are so basic that we had control over. I mean, we as a nation have vaccines and we have testing. We know what works. And so I'm really just hoping he points to models that work for the country rather than giving more attention to the people who are bringing us down. What do you think about, like, pulling the hard levers at this point? Oh, the mandates? Like, you know, yeah, requiring vaccines to fly. Oh, I could go more. I mean, I am up for upping insurance premiums for people who refuse the vaccine. Um, You know, name the stick. I'm probably for it at this point. Do you have some? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> Only to to beat people with who haven't gotten vaccinated. Um, no, but yeah, I think that's right. Right. Um, you know, the incentives have been put out there. The the carrots have been put out there. The um, you know, you get a hundred dollars, you get a thousand dollars, you get you know a gun yeah. raffle. We have those here in West Virginia. You can uh, win a new truck, a gun license, a fishing license, and a million dollars potentially. Yeah. Um, and it's like I do feel like. From what I've seen, it they've made it as easy as possible to get the vaccine unless I'm missing something. I mean, I remember going to New Orleans this summer right there in the airport. Like you get off and it's like free COVID te- or free COVID vaccine, like right here. Um, I believe there they were doing shots for shots at some place. If you got the COVID vaccine, you would get a shot of your choice. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm, I'm for that. Whatever. So, you know, that's not working. Um, and... Yeah, look, we do this for so many other things, right? I mean, we nudge behavior in particular ways that we deem socially desirable. Um, You know, we use the tax code. Um, As you noted, we use insurance premiums. We use fines. I mean, for everything from like texting while driving to, you know, getting energy efficient, you know, appliances and windows for your home, getting married, like all of these behaviors we try to, or, you know, buying a home, like we try to encourage people to go in certain directions. So I don't see how the vaccine, when, especially when the net effect on society is so much greater than any, many of those other behaviors that the government um, nudges in one direction or another, you know, 
for a vaccine, the the net benefit is so much greater that I think they're, they would be justified in, in doing that. Well, it seems to me that we have an, a uniquely American system where we maximize the worst outcomes of all kinds. We've spent all the money on the COVID relief. We've got the vaccine. We've got the testing. And somehow we still have uh, more more deaths post-vaccine in some areas, which is just... It really, I, I don't know how you do that, but somehow states are accomplishing that. But um, let's turn to, I don't know, this is one of my favorite subjects, and I sub- suspect maybe maybe one of yours, <laughs> not totally sure, um, but that would be Kevin McCarthy. Uh, Crazy Kevin. Is that how you'd say that? Yeah, um, <laughs> there were some more, there was some stuff he was doing over the weekend, and it seemed to me that he thought he could sneak this little inter- TV interview with a California TV station where he would say that Donald Trump was cleared of any role um, in the January 6th riot. He, he went on television and he said, the FBI has investigated this. The Senate had bipartisan committees come back. And you know what they found? That there's no involvement. And then he went on to blame this on Nancy Pelosi. Now, now that seems like a change from what he said, of course, um, about a week after the insurrection. But have you seen any report like that by any chance? I haven't seen that specific (laughs) one, Amanda. I suspect that, I mean, I I believe that it's out there and is probably ricocheting in particular information silos for people who are, you know, receptive to hearing that and, you know, need that confirmed. But it's, it's the same playbook. Amanda, it's discrediting any investigation as being, you know, a witch hunt. And we've gone through this before. We went through this with the Russia investigation. I suspect, you know, it's just going to happen all over again with the January 6th investigations, whether they are the criminal investigations or the congressional uh, investigations. Um, But look, it's a playbook that works. So I'm not surprised that this is this is what he's doing. By the way, I think that Kevin... Um, every time his name is mentioned, should be said in the same tone as Newman from Seinfeld. <laughs> You're a big Seinfeld fan, huh? I am. I mentioned it twice now, haven't I? Yeah. I don't know why. No, Just- I, I enjoy the references. I've seen enough of it to know what you're talking about, but I, but I, that that's pretty good. So it'd be like Newman. Kevin, is that it? Because I keep it's thinking like, of Kevin Newman. from Home Alone. Yeah, it- I want to scream it, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> But here, okay, so it sounds like the January 6th committee, they're not going to let him slide on this kind of stuff because they issued a statement over the weekend that was pretty tough. And they had just elevated Liz Cheney to the number two position, which I personally think is wonderful. Um, But they they just came out and said that McCarthy is engaging in a, quote, misinformation campaign. Mm -hmm. They said the report was baseless. They went around and looked at it. And they also pointed to the fact that this is completely inconsistent with what he said on January 13th, when he said specifically that Donald Trump bears responsibility for the attack on Congress by mob rioters. And so this just kind of got my gears turning because we can talk about why Kevin changed his mind. And I think you and I would probably both agree that it's politics. But isn't this something that the January 6th committee should actually look at like when Kevin McCarthy as the leader of Republicans in the house changed his message because they could talk to a lot of his colleagues to try to figure out when and why, because this is a person who had special information into the president's state of mind that day when they were begging him to call off the rioters and McCarthy, when he was acting, it seems on his own volition said Trump was responsible. He bared responsibility. But now he's completely changing his story and straight up lying about the government clearing him of any responsibility. That, to me, is very interesting and something worth dwelling on. Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail right on the head, Amanda. He is a fact witness. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he spoke with Trump that day. Uh, From reports, which I'm... Not sure whether they came directly from him. I mean, he was on the phone telling Trump to get his people to stop and leave. Mm -hmm. So I think what's happening here is more than politics. Kevin McCarthy is terrified because 
when the investigation comes to him, whether it's the FBI, whether it's members of Congress, he is in a in a major dilemma. If he lies to either of these, you know, agent the, to the agency to this body, uh, that's a crime. And if he tells the truth, then he is going to essentially, you know, be contradicting the narrative that Trump wants him to espouse publicly. So, you know, I think what I see a lot in in this in kind of the whatever the statements recently about threatening the telecom companies if they comply, um, this is these are the actions of someone who is scared and desperate because well, he is, the- he's kind of cornered in now um, into having to really explain what happened that day from at least from his point of, you know, from his uh, vantage point. Yeah. Cornered in is a really good way of putting it because I mean, isn't the truth of the matter that, you know, Kevin McCarthy may not have been in on the violence, mm-hmm. but politically speaking, he was in on the misinformation, disinformation campaign that led to the violence every step of the way. I mean, he was the guy after the election who went on Fox and said, Trump won the election. Don't be quiet. We can't let this happen before our eyes. He was in on refusing to call Biden president-elect. He supported that stupid lawsuit by Texas Attorney General Ken Paxson to try to cancel the swing, uh, the, or the votes in the swing states Biden won. And he was still supporting objections after the attack when it came to Pennsylvania and Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so he 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 was in on it. Everything the January 6th committee is investigating about what led to that attack, Kevin McCarthy played a role in. And so it is really confounding to me that he can do all that in the open, try to take a pass on the violence and say, well, Donald Trump didn't have anything to do with it. Because I think he's trying to say, oh, I didn't have anything to do with it either, which just isn't the case. Yeah. I mean... You know, when we think about January 6th, I think we need to think of a spectrum of complicity. Um, And there are many, many people who were complicit in what took place that day um, and who continue to be complicit today. Um, And I think that you're right. Like there are there are some people who I believe are very directly complicit, you know, in in terms of potentially you know, conspiracy, as in knowledge, <laughs> agreement, um, you know, perhaps even facilitating or assisting uh, people who who participated in, in the attack itself. But there is a way to be complicit, even if you, you know, didn't necessarily know that that exact thing was going to take place. If you mm-hmm. are responsible in helping to amplify uh, and, you know, repeat the lie that motivated the people to get there. I mean, we have to remember that the big lie is basically um, at this point, and it was at that point emerging, but it is now this at this point a domestic terror ideology. That's my point of view. I mean, it's no different than, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS wanting to establish, you know, the whatever, the worldwide Islamic caliphate, you know, or like they have an idea uh of restoring Trump to office. That's what's motivating this, right? Like Mm -hmm. he really won, but there is an end goal here, which is essentially to overthrow the government and reinstall Trump, which I guess was supposed to happen in August and it didn't. And I'm not really sure if they moved the goalpost. Um, So if, if you're helping to, you know, prop up any part of the big lie, you are complicit. Um, not only in what happened on January 6th, but also in uh, potential violence that may happen uh, in the future as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, the way you put it, it's a domestic terror, terror ideology. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's provocative, but I think it's right. I It's hard for me to hear the comparisons of, you know, these violent Trump supporters to the Taliban. I'll just be honest with you on that. Um, I, I hear where you're coming from, but it is... We saw we've seen domestic terrorism as a result of this. Um, that that's a really hard truth. Yeah, and I mean the comparison is in the structure of 
the narrative, right? This they believe that they are engaging in a righteous cause that is and when especially when officials like Kevin McCarthy uh, promote it, they believe that they are engaging in um, patriotic actions and that this is you know this is the path to reestablishing kind of a righteous government. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, just this morning I watched a video of one of the the Proud Boys that got sentenced to some kind of jail sentence. And uh, of course, they were filming themselves walking up to the entryway, you know, dutifully turning themselves in. Um, they obviously viewed this as some kind of PR stunt. Um, they're not ashamed of what they did. Mm-mm. They're not ashamed of the role that they played in January 6th. If anything, they're proud of it and are using it to recruit more members. Oh, totally. Yes. And I mean, there's just a lot of different parallels. And I mean, you can see it in the way that... Um, you know, Homeland Security, I mean, the the national uh, strategy for countering domestic terrorism is very similar to how we have approached international terrorism. Um, mm-hmm. It's disrupting plots in action. It is information sharing about uh, what these people are, you know, planning and plotting and saying, um, and also disrupting recruitment, which is a huge concern right now, because, you know, using these... Uh, events, these, you know, the people on TV who are talking about this and January 6th itself as a way to motivate people and encourage people to essentially join the movement or whatever you want to call it at this point um, is a huge concern. Well, let's dig in a little bit more as to the story of this and what the January 6th committee is attempting to do. You mentioned the phone records uh, Mm -hmm. that Kevin McCarthy is very upset uh, the January 6th committee is seeking in you know, we all saw last week when he threatened them, saying if these companies comply with the, quote, Democrat order to turn over private information, they are in violation of federal law and subject to losing their ability to operate in the United States. And that was followed up over the weekend with another letter uh, from 11 House Republicans stating that they do not consent to the release of confidential call records or data um, as a part of this investigation. And those signers are probably the people you would expect. They are people that were closely affiliated (laughs) with that riot rally that happened uh, before the attack. Their names are Andy Biggs, Jim Banks, Matt Gates, Jody Heiss, Scott Perry, Lauren Boebert, Louis Gohmert, Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, and Mo Brooks. And so can can they refuse to consent to their phone records being handed over, Asha? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Amanda, you know, I think we can safely say that that group of people does not belong to Mensa. Okay, Um, so, you know, I don't I don't know that they fully understand what the law is, but no, they can't. You know, a a subpoena, a lawful subpoena does not is not contingent on the on getting the consent of the individual um, whose records are being requested. Um, The standard is whether the subpoena is relevant to a lawful investigation. Mm. And Congress has very lawfully constituted this body, um, this committee, to conduct oversight. Congress has broad oversight authority. And, you know, if these requests are relevant to what they are seeking to investigate, then I don't I don't see any legal bar to to them being turned over. Um, and to be clear, it's not their records. They belong to the phone companies, correct? correct? And these phone are, companies comply with these requests all the time. That's right. These are third party records. And, you know, th- th- this whole area gets very nuanced. But in general, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in, you know, information that essentially you have consented to for a third party to, um, you know, have, right? Mm-hmm. So it does it. Yeah, it does seem unusual that we're in a situation where there are members of Congress potentially subpoenaing information from fellow members of Congress. Th- this could get pretty nasty down the road. Yeah, and I think that you know, I would say that that has more to do with the state of our, you know of being in the communications age. Um, But if you look back on 
Um, other investigations, you know, Watergate, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Iran-Contra, I, you know, the communications that took place between the people who were um, involved. And of course, you're right that those didn't necessarily involve other members of Congress, but they involved government officials were what was at stake, right? Um, because those communications will tell you a lot about exactly, you know, what what the network was and who, who was in touch with who. Um, the, the truth is, is that now people, you know, there was probably a lot of you know, phone activity that day. And so mm-hmm. that those records will will tell us or will tell the committee um, a lot about who was in touch with who, how frequently. Um, and then, you know, that will also pave the way for then. I mean, I think here's the next step is whether those members of Congress are going to be subpoenaed themselves to yeah. testify about, you know, so at 4 p.m. on January 6th, you made a phone call to blank. What was the substance of that conversation? Um, And I think, again, that is what they are most afraid of. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I don't think these threats are reason for the committee not to do it or be, you know, hesitant in going after these facts. But I just... You do have to wonder, given the fact that we know McCarthy desperately wants to be leader again, what these Republicans, as ham-fisted and clownish as they may appear to be, might do if they are in charge of these committees and decide to Mm -hmm. um, launch their own investigations about whatever. I mean, Benghazi was a fairly serious affair, in, in my opinion. I know it got extremely political. There was substance behind it, but this would just be... I, I mean, I can't even imagine what what could come next if they try their hand at this. But if you don't mind, I really would like to dig into these January 6th requests mm-hmm. a little bit more with you. Um, attention, this is going to get nerdy, guys. Sorry, but I am just I am fascinated by what this committee is um, attempting to do because I do view this as a very serious effort. And it really seems to me like they know what they're doing. They're extremely focused in going after um, a certain series of facts. And so there was this, and this all kind of happened over August, I don't think when a lot of people were paying attention, which is probably for the better, to be quite honest. Um, But this first request was made on August 25th. And, you know, the way it was kind of reported in the news is just like, oh, they need records from National Archives and federal agencies. But when you look at the agencies they're targeting, and you look specifically at the information they say they want, Um, It it paints a picture that is worth discussing. And so first, I want to talk to you about the records you're looking at, um, specifically from the executive branch and Department of Justice. Now, I'm just going to read what the committee put out. Um, When it comes to executive branch, they're looking for records pertaining to strategies and plans to derail the electoral college vote count, planning for and coordination of the rallies leading up to January 6th, the former president's knowledge of the election results and what he communicated to the American people about the election and potential plans to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power and challenge the validity of the 2020 election. Asha, what does that say to you about what they're looking for and potentially, you know, what laws could have been violated? Yeah, so that tells me that they are looking to find to answer the question of did President Trump understand that he was losing or had lost the election legitimately and was engaging in a deliberate and concerted effort with top officials in the Department of Justice to cast doubt on those results um and potentially, you know, engage in fraudulent investigations um, based on, you know. Right. And we know Donald Trump doesn't use email, but a lot of other people do. And I imagine there are other people in the executive branch observing things who weren't completely on board, but have knowledge. And once these facts start to dribble out, may be talking to the committee or may have already talked to the committee and told them, what records to go after specifically? Is that a possibility? Yes. Um, and so, and, and here's where I would just flag one, you know, possible like obstacle that I hope the committee takes into account. I mentioned Iran Contra before. 
Um, and I also mentioned how they might subpoena some of these people to come testify. Um, and some of the information that these people may be asked to testify about could implicate them in criminal activity. So, for example, mm. one possibility if, you know, Trump members of the Trump administration and senior officials in the Department of Justice were trying to, you know, cast doubt. Uh, like knowingly cast out on otherwise legitimate election results or, or create fraudulent investigations, you know, that could be a conspiracy to defraud the the government of the United States, for example. Um, now, to com- now, those people could, in front of the committee, say, I plead the fifth. Um, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, and they have the right to do that. Now, the committee could, at that point, immunize their test, immunize them. And mm-hmm. say, you know, you you can testify and what your statements can't, won't be used against you. Now, this happened in Iran-Contra. And what happened was as a result of immunizing the witnesses' testimony in front of Congress, it ended up compromising the criminal investigations mm-hmm. that were being conducted by the independent counsel. Because when they got into court, the in the independent counsel couldn't prove, even if they took out these statements that were given to Congress, that the case that was built up against them was completely independent of that. And so well, doesn't that provide an incentive, I guess, for the committee to try to immunize people to get the information out? That's a really complex question. Well, what so I'm if saying the committee is that that then that could, you know, it could end up making it harder to prosecute these people um, for you know, if, if they did, in fact, violate the law. Well, let me ask you this. If, if, say, the committee does turn up evidence that does lead someone to suspect there was criminal activity, could they just turn that over to the Justice Department to pursue rather than use it as a part of their investigation, which really is only a narrative building exercise? Absolutely. So, you know, if they uncover evidence that, you know, may have been a crime, they can certainly refer that to the Department of Justice and allow the uh, allow the criminal process to take its route. Um, And in that case, they may want to, like, wait until that criminal process, you know, the criminal investigation has kind of run its course before, you know, having these people testify. But for the American public and for this committee, that's a dilemma, right? Because that Mm -hmm. means that because part of the purpose of this is not just not only to get to the bottom of what happened, but also to have a public accounting of it. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's in the interest of these committees to have these people testify because it's about accountability to the American people. And that is sometimes at odds with a criminal investigation, which is kind of under wraps until they finally get everything squared away. Um, Well, does this have any similarity? I mean, I'm just speculating here to sort of the classic mob investigation where you try to get the lower level fish, or in this case, lower level government officials to tell everything, give them immunity, and then climb up the ladder. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. um, But I think that these Department of Justice officials... Members of Congress. I mean, they're they're towards the top of the totem pole. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess I just have in my mind that there may be, you know, some communications officials in the White House who saw a lot of everything mm-hmm. and can point to the right things and what you know potentially people of interest. Yeah. Um. But mm-hmm. let's go on to since we're talking about the Department of Justice because the the J six committee is also making specific requests to DOJ. And I'll I'll read that section here. Um, For that that agency, they're looking at records pertaining to the potential invocation of the Insurrection Act, martial law, or the 25th Amendment. Communications between the department and the former president's campaign legal team and others dealing with the validity of the 2020 election or challenges to the election outcome. The vice president's role as a presiding officer in the certification of votes of the Electoral College in coordination and communications with other government entities during the January 6th attack. Um, you know, a couple of things stand out to me there, but what stands out to you? Uh, basically, all of these relate to um, the peaceful transfer of power mm-hmm. and what they were expecting and what they were trying to plan for. I mean, essentially, Amanda, to be quite frank, this sounds like they are 
investigating whether there was um, an attempt to plot a coup. Hmm. Um, or I guess technically it would be um, an auto coup, which is like you're already <laughs> in power and you try to stay in power. Um, but, you know, Insurrection Act, the the vice president, like, is he, you know, is I think, you know, I I would guess the question is, were, was there research being done on, on is there any way that he could uh, invalidate <laughs> the, the electoral college results, you know, because that was what was being put out publicly. Um, you know, this is uh, it's interesting because normally these kinds of communications would be covered by, you know, different kinds of executive privilege, like deliberative process, um, which, you know, the executive branch has invoked in, in other contexts. And it's really interesting that the Department of Justice, in response to these requests, has let witnesses know, and I suspect it's going to apply to these documents, that they are not going to be uh, invoking executive privilege um, hmm. on all of these requests. And they've done it for two reasons. They've justified it. Now, one thing that's really interesting is the... Executive privilege is held by the current president because it it adheres to the office, not the person. Um, and presidents of either party have an interest in invoking it and keeping the scope of that privilege as broad as possible because, again, it affects what they do as well, right? You don't want Congress or judicial branch always like poking into your business. So what the Department of Justice has said is we're going to not invoke it here for two reasons. And this is what makes it different than any other thing. Number one, this is an extraordinary circumstance that requires us to accommodate Congress in its request. And, you know, the some um, I think there's like a comparison to after 9-11, you know, they they handed over the president's daily brief, which they otherwise may not have had to do. Um, to to help the 9-11 commission in understanding what it was, what intelligence was available um, to the president when, when that happened. Um, and the second thing, and this is really important, it gets to these specific requests that you're pointing to. They said, we also believe that um, the requests, uh, uh, the information being sought relates to how Trump was behaving in his personal capacity as a candidate for reelection. Mm. not as the president of the United States. And so all of these requests, like, you know, like you, the, the Insurrection Act, all this stuff is really about him as a candidate potentially trying to win. Does that make sense? And yeah, so that's really interesting because, yeah, this was all geared around, you know, potentially decertifying the results mm -hmm. and maintaining his political hour. So what you're saying is these, are, these just weren't official acts. He was taking the records requests are aimed at campaign communication to maintain power, essentially, and or at least that's how Department of Justice is distinguishing this. So that kind of to uh, your point, like let's say later Republican committee comes back and is like, well, we're going to request all of this stuff, and you know, you didn't invoke executive privilege. There's a way for them to say this is why this particular thing is different. Yeah. And kind of yeah. different than any other thing, you know, any other Congress executive branch, you know, whatever tug of war. Yeah, I, I in particular, I'm fascinated by the negotiations over the Insurrection Act and the potential of that being invoked so that martial law could be declared, because that is what a lot of these militia groups were talking about planning for. If you read the court documents and other things from other investigations that have been discovered. But this other thing, I just, I feel like we should flag. Um, there are two departments looking at Pence's role as presiding officer. Um, there's that line I mentioned from the DOJ um, where they want to look at his role as presiding officer. But then there's a specific request um, to the Department of Homeland Security where they're asking about um, records related to the Secret Service protection of Mike Pence and his family on January 6th. And that just strikes me as something that's very specific. Mm -hmm. And there was some reporting that Pence at one point was afraid to get in the car with the Secret Service at some point. And so it seems to me there's there's something the committee um, suspects that they're going after related to Mike Pence. Um, there's a lot of misinformation that was rattling around um, 
when it came to his ability potentially to overturn the election. Um, but yeah, that's just something I'm, I'm sort of keeping an eye on. And this leads into the second information request, um, which is from social media companies. And this is more straightforward. Um, but they sent out these letters on the 27th, looking at records related to the spread of misinformation, efforts to overturn the election, um, domestic violent terrorism, and foreign influence. And what they're getting at here is they want to look at what social media companies did or didn't do to stop the flow of this information. And, mm-hmm. you know, this to me has been such a blind spot for Congress. Nobody knows what to do about it. But this to, is a really interesting vector to explore this problem um, in the way that they're, at least now, at least initially, asking the social media companies, hey, all this stuff happened. It was organized in your platform. Give us two weeks to tell us what you did about it. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to what I mentioned before, that we are in an information age, which makes the landscape very different than essentially any other you know, scandal or uh, congressional investigation. I mean, you know, let's imagine that after Nixon, you know, gets busted for Watergate, he wanted to, you know, instigate like a national revolt. It would have been really hard um, back then. There were three channels on television. Um, You know, he has no way of getting, you know, a particular kind of message out, even as president, to just masses of people or kind of allowing things to circulate from the grassroots level up. Social media makes this possible, right? You can use proxies. Foreign, um, you know, foreign countries can capitalize on misinformation and help amplify them. Things can reach billions of people in a matter of hours. And so, you know, Something like January 6th, um, and I think this, uh, the intelligence community and the and FBI in particular has been, I think, rightly criticized for kind of not being on top of this. Um, all of these were circulating. You know, the, the come to January 6th, Patriot, 1776, all this nonsense um, was circulating on social media through December um, leading up to the events of, of January 6th. And some of those themes were being echoed by members of Congress and by the president. Um, so, yes, it's completely connected. And I com- I think you're exactly right that, you know, in general, Congress has no idea how to handle the role of social media in today's threat environment. Now, let me ask you, do you think you know, this committee is going to make a report and, you know, they have a long time to do it. It's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, I assume they'll have some recommendations um, that they also include in it. Would it be weird if they included social media reform um, ideas in those recommendations? Do you think that would be an appropriate place to put something like that? Not at all. I mean, the Senate Intelligence Committee's investigation into Russian election interference addressed this. So absolutely, they should address it in, you know, this context. I mean, I think the challenge is when you're dealing, you know, what we have is a confluence, Amanda, of a bunch of different things. Um, You not only have free speech, you have political speech, you have domestic actors who have First Amendment rights. um, And then, you know, you have the social media companies sitting right on top of this. And so it becomes a much harder landscape to navigate than, say, dealing with, you know, foreign terrorist groups, right, who have no First Mm -hmm. Amendment rights. We have a national security, um, you know, reasons to say, like, censor that information or get social media companies to do that. Um, Hopefully, this committee will also hear from thoughtful experts and scholars on exactly how to navigate this thicket um, if they do decide to put recommendations in. Because I don't think they are – I think they should, but I don't think they are simple. They need to be thoughtful and nuanced um, in how to address the role of social media in domestic violence – or sorry, domestic um, terrorism, you know, extremist violence contexts. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Yeah. And just to, you know, close the loop, you know, we already talked about that third records request that was for the phone records. Um, But it's just, it's really interesting, again, the the targeted way they're going after this. Um, They're they're going after uh, records of individuals who could serve as links 
between those who are involved with the organization and planning of the rallies and those that committed violence. Um, and I saw reporting that, you know, in this first tranche, Kevin McCarthy's records aren't even included in it. And that just, you know, that seems smart. They're looking at the people who were the links. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you mentioned before, this isn't just the date and timestamp of a phone call. There is a lot of information that can come out of those records in regards to logistics, who was where at what point in time, mm-hmm. how they moved um, in response to what kind of messages. And so, you know, for the right kind of analysts, and I believe this committee has them, um, they're really interesting pictures that are going to be painted of how this movement evolved over time and even on the ground uh, that day. And and Amanda, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, don't forget, as we've already talked about there, this is a, these are parallel investigations. You're only talking about the congressional requests. There's a criminal investigation underway. I, I'm 99% sure that the FBI already has this information. Ah, that's Uh, interesting. Maybe that's why they don't need a subpoena. They can just ask for DOJ to send it over. Do they share information like that ever? Is that allowed? That's a good question. <laughs> I um, I don't know how porous that particular... It seems like that would be strange, but I don't know. Yeah, just because they're different purposes, and I would think that to preserve the integrity of each of their investigations, they would want to go through their own process rather than... Um, but what you're saying is the phone companies already have them on a shelf ready to go, maybe. <laughs> I I am I have no doubt that that's the case. I mean, you know, the, these would have been relevant to the FBI's investigation. And not just because, you know, these particular people are necessarily because they're under investigation. But again, they need to get the full picture of what was happening, as you just noted, logistically on that day. Right. Um, so. Again, the standard of it being relevant to an ongoing investigation to me would be met um, whether or not the the you know subscribers of those records themselves are necessarily criminally liable. Well, while I have you here, I want to ask you about another really tough topic, and I think this is good for us to address because it's relatively unusual for two women to be discussing uh, this topic on the air, and that's the Texas uh, abortion law. And what I'm really interested in hearing you explain is, in particular, this new private right of action. Because, you know, I've been in the conservative movement. I've followed all this stuff for a long time. And these conservative legal scholars seem pretty proud of themselves for creating this this new way of challenging abortion laws in a way that where they don't have to, uh, you know, go against Roe versus Wade by forcing the government to interfere with abortions. But now they've allowed private citizens to go after other private citizens um, on suspicion, I guess, that someone is obtaining an abortion or assisted in that. Um, can, can you explain it, how new this is, how unusual it is? And then I want to get into the potential um, unintended consequences and potential for harassment. Yeah. Um. This is very unusual. So normally when states have passed bans, uh, enforcement bans on abortion, um, you know, enforcement of that ban is put in the hands of state officials, which then um, allows people who want to challenge it, you know, bring an, you know, injunctive relief suit against those state officials, and then that can be litigated. And, um, you know, maybe in the meantime, there's a stay on the the law going into effect. And basically, what this has, what this particular law has done is circumvent that state action um, piece by essentially saying, hey, there's a ban, but guess what? The state officials aren't going to be the ones enforcing it. What we're going to do is allow private individuals, and basically any private individual, to bring a lawsuit a civil lawsuit against anyone they think is violating this ban, um, including and up to aiding and abetting in a, in violating this ban, um, or even intending to do so, which was is very okay. broad. Yeah, and I think this is worth stopping on because I, I really haven't seen this aspect of it addressed in the fact that someone can sue someone based on the suspicion mm-hmm. that you had an abortion. I mean, what if it, let's say. You know, a lot of women between six and 12 weeks have miscarriages. Mm-hmm. 
um, people that wanted to have those babies. Um, it is terrible. It is, it is tragic. It is traumatizing. And you're telling me that potentially some jackwad sitting in a basement somewhere can suspect that some woman had an abortion and take her to court and make her prove what happened to her and her body and her potential baby. So it's important to note that this bill doesn't actually target the women themselves. It's targeting uh, providers or anyone who assists or, or aids and abets in helping her to procure the abortion. But they're so, asking for her records. Yeah. I mean, and that would, you know, if so a civil lawsuit, let's remember, is very different than a say criminal investigation. Um, anyone can file it. And yes, there are things in the process, like a motion to dismiss, uh, a motion for summary judgment, which can get a, a frivolous lawsuit thrown out at a very early stage. To get the records, you'd have to pass those particular uh, you know points and then get to the point of discovery. And I think in a lot of these cases, they wouldn't. But and, I, you know, this kind of starts to get into the unintended consequences. But the point is, people can file frivolous lawsuits. Yeah. And if they have against the, medical providers who, you know, I, I mean, as if, exactly. as if being a gynecologist and dealing with babies wasn't hard enough. I mean, you're talking about the people that have to deliver really bad news to people on the regular. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, in my mid thirties, I know a lot of women who desperately want their children and they, for a lot of reasons, it doesn't happen for them. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of women who had to get quote unquote an abortion that never wanted it. Mm -hmm. It was the last thing they ever wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And so now these doctors are going to have to prove, I mean, they may be a hundred percent pro-life. I don't think there's any woman that walks into a place wanting an abortion. No. You know, I don't think this is the kind of procedure that you know, you go and get your nails done and you go out and celebrate after contrary to what, you know, I think a minority of liberal opinion is out there. And I just, I, I don't understand how this all comes down on the doctors and the women and there's well, no consequences for men. It, there's never any consequences for men from the pro-life movement. No, no, they're, they, they could have sex with anyone they want and impregnate them. And then they just, you know, skip off into the sunset. But, um, so, you know, I think the problem with this law, Amanda, regardless of where you fall on the policy issue of abortion itself, is that it's an extremely cynical approach to achieving a policy outcome. And I think it gets to this bigger idea where we are at a point where the ends justify the means, even if it means um, burning everything down in the process, including our you know, institutions, our processes, our systems. And what's happening here is this is opening the floodgates to just a slew of lawsuits, you know, meritorious or baseless against anyone and using essentially uh, the the fear and threat and monetary ruin that that would result as a result, uh, that would result from this litigation to essentially scare doctors and providers, drive them out of business or drive them out mm. of the state. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't imagine that there is a judge in Texas who wants to see this law pass. I mean, can it, it will it is going to just ruin, you know, like we're seeing in COVID right now where, you know, these yeah. COVID patients are making it so that that truly sick or, you know, other sick patients can't get ICU beds. That's what's going to happen to the docket in Texas where you're going to have, you know, freaking crazy lawsuits and people who really, you know, have legitimate disputes to resolve in the judicial process are going to end up getting delayed and not getting justice. Um, doctors are going to see their insurance, their, you know, um, liability insurance premiums skyrocket to the point where they, I don't know how, if they will want to remain in Texas to practice. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's just... It's a very cynical way to ultimately avoid what I think should be the hallmark of a democracy. You know, if you really believe in this policy solution, the state should implement it, allow, 
and, and take accountability for it and say, yes, this is the policy that we have implemented. We are going to enforce it and then allow it to be litigated. And if it goes up to the Supreme Court and they want to overturn Roe versus Wade, I mean, that's a separate issue. But at least it is holding like the state is saying we are willing to go to bat. And what they're doing here is um, kind of a too clever by half strategy that if it if this kind of strategy is approved, if like any Tom, Dick and Harry can sue, you know, anybody that they, you know, a doctor they just don't like and accuse them of like mm-hmm. performing abortions. I mean, we can apply this to a lot of different contexts, Amanda. We're just going to become a crazy w- wild west of litigation for every policy issue you can think of. Yeah. Well, I I am ready. I I'm ready to lead a new pro-life legal movement where we actually crack down on the Tom, Dick and Harrys. Because the truth of the matter is that a woman can only get pregnant a few times a month. Men can impregnate a woman, a woman pretty much any time they want. If you want to talk about unwanted pregnancies, you can look at the men. And if you want to say that there are consequences for men and point me to child support laws, that is a joke. They hardly, most of the time, you know, I think it's like 61% of men pay child support. And, and that's a joke. That's a joke because women give up their lives and that's great. They may want to do that for their children. But the fact when it comes to mothers and babies that men continually get off scot-free when they are the ones that actually cause the unwanted pregnancies. You can say it takes two to tango. It does take two. But just mathematically speaking, (laughs) the burden falls on the men. And we have the science. We can prove paternity. And so let's do that. Let's start enforcing the law against men who cause these unwanted pregnancies and too often walk away from the kids with no penalty at all. I'm ready to change the paradigm on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, oh. you know, there there are a lot of – I mean, you're just basically pointing to structural and systemic issues that um, beyond just, you know, the the burden on the woman of carrying the pregnancy, like put – like as you just said, like lay everything – um, at her feet, which is problematic, and which yeah. uh, condoms are cheap. Birth control is expensive, hard to obtain, has a lot of side effects, takes a while to kick in. Like we, we can, are reversible. We can, <laughs> <laughs> yes, we we can go up and down the side of the ledger. But anyway, thank you for letting me get that off my chest yeah. because in all the time um, that I've been in uh, commentary and politics, I've never got to have that part of the discussion. So I appreciate that. But before you go. Um, you have had an amazing career. I mean, I think anybody that talks about you says, oh my gosh, she is such a badass. She's done so many amazing things. And I was doing my Wikipedia stalking of you and uh, noticed that you started training at Quantico for the FBI in 2001. So that means 9-11 has pretty much been hanging over your entire career Mm -hmm. in law and security. And I am just curious about your reflections coming up on that 20th anniversary. Yeah, I mean it it's really interesting cuz you know the the time that I was in the FBI was really a soul-searching moment for that particular agency in addition to the whole country. Um you know the there was consideration of splitting up the FBI, taking out its intelligence function from its law enforcement function. Um you know Robert Mueller uh was a director then and kind of shepherded the agency through that. Um and a lot of things changed. Uh what I think is I think there's both, you know, the the two sides of the coin are this. Number one, we really, really, um, we were resilient, enhanced our intelligence capabilities. I think the FBI especially rose to the occasion. Uh, we were able to, you know, fill all those gaps. And I think, you know, the, the last 20 years, the knock on wood, that we have not had a major foreign terrorist attack in the same way, you know, attest to that. Um I think, uh, and I have a piece coming out in Just Security tomorrow about this, I think in many ways the pendulum swing towards counterterrorism blinded us to some of the other threats on the horizon. Um, You know, the intelligence threat from Russia, uh, the domestic terrorism threat. And I think in some ways we're kind of like, you know, those chickens are coming home to roost. But I think... As I mentioned before, we can actually take a lot of what we learned in the war on terror abroad um, and be able to adapt them to kind of the, this new context. 
Um, the irony, Amanda, is that many of these powers that were given to the intelligence community in the wake of 9-11 is precisely what many of these Republican members of Congress, you know, who may have even voted for them, now object to um, mm-hmm. uh, when they're used in, in, a, in a situation that, you know, could could lead back to them. Um, but that's that's where I've been thinking. And again, I have a I have a piece coming out tomorrow with those reflections um, in just security. Well, great. I will I will look for that article, uh, push it out. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was really great, Asha, and I hope to see you around in person, CNN sometime soon. And listeners, order those stupid over-the-counter COVID tests now <laughs> because it's going to take you two weeks to get them. And toilet Thanks, paper. Everybody. Yes. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye.